0: informing america's farmers and ranchers it's adams on agriculture produced by the american ag radio network here's your host mike adams
1: hello everyone and welcome to adams on agriculture thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day here we are at midweek and lots of things happening so much going on we have a big show today plenty to talk about uh yesterday there was a story that came out uh talking about what might happen with the new round of market facilitation payments or trade aid. Actually, they're calling it Farming Support Program this time around. And there were some projections of what the amounts might be for, for soybeans and corn and wheat. And that led to all kinds of uh, reaction on social media, lots of criticism of a program we do not yet have details on. We're still waiting for those details. But we'll talk about uh, some of the possibilities of uh, what those payments might be, how they're going to base them, and the impacts that could or could not have on, on planting. That's where a lot of the speculation's at. We're going to talk with University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin about that on the program today. Also coming up, the latest on talks with China. Uh, are we moving forward or stuck? Have we fallen back? We're going to talk with Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President for the U.S.-China Business Council, for an update. And then, the uh, Yesterday, there was a Senate Ag Committee hearing on uh, climate change, and one of those uh, testifying was former Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And he talked about, he stressed the opportunities for agriculture in this uh, in this ongoing debate and opportunity over burdens for agriculture. So, um, you know, so often in the past, when these kind of talks have come up about climate change, it usually leads has led to some type of uh, extra regulation or more burdens upon agriculture. Tom Bilsack stressed we need to look at the opportunities for agriculture. We'll also get his thoughts on the latest trade issues as well. So as I said, a busy, busy program. In fact, we're going to start things off looking at trade and exports. Our guest now is Jim Sutter. He is CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Jim, thanks for joining us. Uh, While we wait to see... uh, how much we're going to produce this year as far as the soybean crop, and that's still up in the air because of the uh, delayed planting and the the challenging weather we have this spring. We know we still already have plenty of soybeans in stock that we need to find a home for, and I know you and the, at the Soybean Export Council, you're working hard to, to find a home for those soybeans.
2: That's for sure, Mike. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you this morning. You know, uh, last week we had really a, an exciting week. We was kind of exceptional in terms of how many events we conducted around the world. We had five different events on three different continents and had 550 customers of soy, uh, you know, either current customers of U.S. soy or prospective customers of U.S. soy. Uh, we had uh, 30 different countries represented and 25 U.S. export companies uh... were involved in those various events and what we're what we're out talking about with people is the u.s. soy advantage you know the, uh, the the quality of the crop that we have and it really does have some intrinsic quality advantages the amino acid profile the energy content and then of course the reliable infrastructure that we have uh... is something that's very important and is uh, second to none in terms of soybean suppliers in the world and then finally and it's becoming more and more important the sustainability of US soy and that's thanks to all the great farmers we have that produce soy in such a uh, conservation minded uh, sustainable way and I know we take it kind of for granted in this country but it really is becoming more important to buyers around the world and their customers who want to know how their products are produced are they are they harming the environment as they as they as they purchase uh, things like soybeans. So so we have a great message, and so we had a great opportunity, good opportunity to talk about that with many people around the world last week. And we're out doing that, trying to do it every week. Uh, can't hit that many people every week, but trying to move these U.S. soybeans.
1: Well, obviously China is such a big focus. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what are some of the other key markets you're looking at that could, uh, uh, could uh, be great opportunities for us to move soybeans to?
2: Well, let me talk, I mean, so we have, of course, Europe has been a long-term customer, and we've really, our market shares really jumped with them this year, and we have places like Japan and Korea that have also been good, strong, long-term customers. Mexico and a few other South American, Latin American countries are really good customers. But let me just mention a few things that, a few that may not resonate with people or might not be the ones that come most top to mind. Think of Egypt, think of Pakistan, think of Bangladesh all countries that have uh, relatively large populations relatively low protein consumption today in terms of what their people eat and uh, really rapidly growing economies rapidly improving economies and they're at that spot in their development where as people's income rises they want to improve their diet they want to eat a little bit more meat they want to use a little more cooking oil and that is really the sweet spot for soybean demand growth because we can help them produce more meat, and we can help them have more cooking oil if they either import soybeans or import the constituents of soy. So, so places like that are, uh, are exciting for us. We've, we've really kind of changed our strategy or taken on a new part of our strategy, I would say, the last few years, even before the China issue came up, wanting to be working in more of these far-out developing markets. Uh, another one, for example, last week we had an event in Nigeria our first USEC event in Nigeria. Uh, Some other, uh, WISH, another part of the soy family has been working there for a few years earlier, but we really, we think they're ready now to go more mainstream in terms of the way that they use soy. Their poultry industry we think is set to grow rapidly, but that's a market that is hardly imports anything today, but we see in the future, given their population and their economics, that they could become another important buyer. So Lots of non-traditional destinations that we are working with to be trying to uh, get U.S. soy moved to many markets
1: around the world. All right, let's talk China. Uh, When it comes to soybeans, uh, with the African swine fever, the loss of so many hogs over there, it would seem to diminish the the market for us selling soybean, soy meal into China. Uh, What's your perspective on that? Uh, What are you hearing?
2: we're hearing that, in, indeed, total demand, in total soybean demand into China will be down this year because of the African swine fever situation, and also, I think, in part because of China's efforts to minimize uh, protein demand when they were going through the first round of the trade war, when, uh, you know, when it was clear the U.S. wasn't, they were, they were not going to import anything from the U.S. So we think their demand will be down five or seven million tons versus where it would have been. Uh, Otherwise, and so like 86 million tons instead of 93 or 94 million tons, uh, it appears to us what the numbers are going to look like. The amount of that that comes from the U.S. is going to be very small. Um, You know, this marketing year to date, they've purchased about uh, 6 million tons from the U.S. Uh, They've actually shipped 6 million tons. They have a few more purchases on the books. But given the current state of play between China and the U.S., I question whether they will ship very many more of those purchases they actually have on the books. They might cancel those or something. So just to put that in perspective, last year we shipped, by this time in the marketing year, we had shipped uh, 26.5 million tons to China. This year we've only shipped six. Um, And that's kind of where I'm afraid, unless, uh, unless we get trade negotiations back on track, I'm afraid that might be where it will end up somewhere close to that for the year.
1: Uh, All right, Jim, thank clearly, you, thank you hey, for your time, and thank you, thanks for the update. And uh, we'll stay in touch with you to see about these other markets that can help uh, pick up the slack, what we're losing with a uh, key market like China. Thanks, Jim, for the update.
2: Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. Have a great day.
1: Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. All right, stay with us. More coming up here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
3: There's a lot of talk coming from the makers of wheat fungicides these days, and some of them are really talking up some pretty big claims. But
2: when you eliminate the fungicides
3: that are Johnny come latelys, the ones without a proven track record, and the ones from makers who consider wheat to be just an afterthought, there's really only one left to talk about the one you know and can trust. Karamba fungicide from BASF. It gives you best-in-class head scab suppression, top-level dawn reduction, and excellent control of late-season foliar diseases. And all of that gives you a proven yield advantage over untreated infected wheat acres. Caramba fungicide from BASF. For time-proven performance you can trust. Everything else is just... Talk,
2: talk, talk, talk. Talk, 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 talk
3: To learn talk, how Caramba talk. fungicide can help your wheat's yield potential, talk to your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow
1: label directions. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Sinex Premium Diesel. cinex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
4: Everyone responds differently to change. Some are frightened by it. Some try to ignore it and some are inspired by it. POET has always shared a true connection with farmers, and like farmers, we see the world differently. We're inspired by change. So when it comes to the challenge of climate change, we see opportunity to make the air cleaner, to make our country safer, to leave the planet we've been given just a little better. Biofuels and oil alternatives, solutions for a brighter, more sustainable world. Get inspired with us. Visit POET.com.
5: Your diesels are your engines of prosperity, so they deserve the best treatment. And with FS Fuel and Lubricant, you'll give them the gold standard. Diesel X Gold High Performance Fuel plus Suprex Gold ESP Engine Oil. Formulated to work together, they'll keep your diesels running longer and stronger, from farming to construction to trucking. Visit FSGoldStandard.com or talk with your local FS Energy Specialist. FS, bringing you what's next.
1: Recently on Atoms on Agriculture, talking with Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. We've heard some people now speculating that the window is closing on getting USMCA passed this year. Do you think we're, we're in that tough a shape?
2: I still think that we have some opportunities to, to push it through this year. I know that there's some rhetoric out there and the window's closing and there are some that are getting frustrated about one side or the other doing this or that. But I think if everybody steps back and they realize The importance of Canada and Mexico, they're going to say, hey, this is a good deal. It improves that relationship. It cleans up some issues we've had before. There are a couple of placeholders specifically on biotech that just weren't in the original agreement that are really beneficial. So I think that this is a positive agreement. Agriculture certainly wants it. And we're pushing on members of Congress to say, hey, let's let's move forward
1: with this agreement. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. All right, so yesterday that story comes out uh, speculating that uh, this next round of uh, market facilitation payments or farming support programs, it's being called, was going to come out and have $2 for soybeans, 63 cents a bushel for wheat, 4 cents uh, for corn, and that got social media all a buzz. Everybody speculating and talking about it, how that would impact planting and farmers would plant more soybeans uh, to take advantage of, of those payments. But we still don't have the details yet, still waiting on those. But let's talk about it with Scott Irwin, University of Illinois Ag Economist. Scott, you've been uh, busy uh, uh, speculating as well. What are your your thoughts and what we're hearing so far on this?
10: Well, again, like you said, all we have is a leaked report, so we always need to uh, be at least cautious knowing we don't know the actual outlines of the program. It can change uh, before it's released, and I'm sure there's been lots of discussions in Washington, D.C., based on reactions uh, that that the USDA and Congress people have have provided. But what we know is in its most basic form, at least going on the information that was leaked, that the two key aspects that I see are, one, that the leaked, in the leak proposal the payments are linked or coupled to your planted acreage in 2019 yes yields uh, would be based historically but in order to get the payment you have to plant a particular crop and secondly that the payment rates i would say wildly favor soybeans over corn And to me, those are the two key things that uh, were a part of what was leaked.
1: If these numbers hold uh, when they actually are announced, are you surprised there's still such a gap in favor of soybeans over corn and wheat?
10: Well, I think the answer to that is it depends on the framework the USDA is using to justify, uh, the entire program. If it's based on trade effects, then the price impacts on soybeans have uh, definitely been much larger than they've been on corn. Um, you know, we can argue about the secondary price impacts on corn through the linkage in supply. Uh, but that, that to me is, um, probably um, why there's such a disparity you know but what that runs into smack into is this problem of then incentivizing soybeans at a time when that's the last thing we need to do is to incentivize further expansion of soybean acreage in the United States in 2019.
1: USDA officials keep saying they don't want Farmers to plant for this program, they want to want them to plant for the market, but how how are they going to avoid when you announce a program like this during planting season? How do you avoid it not uh, impacting acres and farmers' planting decisions?
10: Well, uh, again, you can avoid that um, entirely by decoupling the payments from acreage this year, which is why traditionally, when we had our direct payment program and past farm bills, uh, it's always based on uh, historic yields and historic acreage, our base yield and our base acreage. That's why you do it that way, so that you um, don't interfere with the market incentives to plant corn or soybeans. Uh, and so that's the only way. Even if you delay announcement past when most of these crops are going to be planted, which at this point, who knows when that's going to be in June, even if you did that, the genie is out of the bottle. To some degree, you're going to influence planting decisions because the information is out there, and to some degree, it's got to affect your planting decisions. You know, you would lean towards soybeans over corn, because of the possibility that the payments are going to be uh, coupled. And now there's no way out of that.
1: Yeah, that that was my point. I mean, even even if you do, even if they decouple, I mean, as you said, it's already got an impact. It's already got an influence, and and the weather may be playing into that, uh, pushing uh, more acres to beans. Anyway, uh, we're talking with University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin. Well, let's talk about the planting and the delayed planting, uh, Scott. Mm-hmm. And first of all, the big question on prevent plant uh, that seems to be the big uh, decision right now for many farmers.
10: Absolutely. Um, you know, it's a complicated decision, but we know what we first have to get, I think, our minds around is the scale of corn acreage in the. US that is going to be at least open for consideration for prevent plant. You know, my guess is that the just in the four western corn belt states of North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas, that there's probably around 12 million acres that will not be of corn that will not be planted as of Saturday. And all of that then will be potentially eligible for prevent plant. And then, of course, the question is, okay, how much of that will actually uh, re- go into prevent plant? And that's the difficult question is trying to figure that one out.
1: It is amazing, you and I are in Illinois, and I don't remember many years, if any, where on May 22nd, northern states have more corn planted than we do in Illinois. Yeah, it's
10: it's truly an incredible season of just phenomenal wetness. And I, I think that the explanation um, is painful for farmers, but it's pretty simple. In the past, in Illinois, we've had really wet Aprils that have knocked us out for planting. In the past, we've had really wet Mays that have delayed us. But it's extraordinarily unusual to have one right after the other. In other words, both April and both May to be this wet and making us this
1: late. So we also need to be looking and thinking more about the acres that are planted and will be planted, what will they yield? That has to be impacted by this, too.
10: That's right. Um, we do know from past examples of really late planting that it's possible to still have good, good crops, even starting off this poor. But that's not the way you would want to bet. Um, when it's this late, there's so much ponding, there's emergence problems. There's uh, all sorts of ways that you mess up yield potential really early in the field when it's this wet and this cold and damp. And so you know, you, I think it's you know, reasonable now to, to be talking about uh, dropping the U.S. average yield of corn in expectation at this point by five or six bushels an acre.
1: Because we're looking at a lot of acres, if they're going to get planted to corn, a lot of them will be planted in June this year.
10: Uh, clearly, and it's, that's especially important. That's an especially important point given the weather this week, and in fact, weather in the last 24 hours. I mean, this was a widespread um, half to inch plus that covered virtually the entire corn belt. So, given how wet it Already has been in many areas this means the unplanted acres are going to be definitely pushed out into next week, which is you know late May so you know given the scale of unplanted uh, corn at this point, you know we have tens of millions of acres of corn that if it's going to get planted to corn this year it will be in June and that's really unprecedented and that's why I call this the Black Swan event for planting. The U.S. corn crop late this year because we've just really never had. We've been late, this late in mid-May before, but we've never had this much corn likely pushed off into a June planting window um, in in the modern era of U.S. corn belt agriculture.
1: All right, Scott, thanks a lot, and we'll talk again after USDA makes their announcement on their farming support program, and we have the numbers and find out what their formula was, and we'll talk about it then, okay?
10: Sounds great. Uh, Something interesting every day, right, Mike?
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Plenty to talk about. Thanks, Scott.
10: Uh, always, Always a pleasure.
1: All right. University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin, well, where do we stand with Talks with China? Wow, it seems like we were so close and now it looks like things have fallen back. What's really going on behind the scenes? We'll talk about it with Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President for the U.S.-China Business Council, next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines.
9: Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as four and a half percent and fuel economy by up to five percent. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Zenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around.
4: Everyone responds differently to change. Some are frightened by it, some try to ignore it, and some are inspired by it. Poet has always shared a true connection with farmers, and like farmers, we see the world differently. We're inspired by change. So when it comes to the challenge of climate change, we see opportunity. To leave the planet we've been given just a little better biofuels oil alternatives nutrient-rich proteins these solutions create cleaner air and a more sustainable world get inspired with us visit poet.com
0: time now for a market update here on Adams on agriculture i'm rusty halverson from the american ag network a Wednesday mix for the granite oilseed sector, with soybean futures trending higher, a weaker tone to the wheats. The futures ended mixed yesterday. Market movement comes following a statement late yesterday from USDA, in which the agency pushed back on reports that the 2019 Farm Aid package could pay 2 bucks a bushel for soybeans, $0.63 cents for wheat, $0.04 cents for corn. July soybeans erased intraday gains to 8.46 and a half yesterday to close sharply lower. An hour into this Wednesday session, July soybeans nine and a quarter higher at 8.31 and a quarter. November up nine and a quarter, 8.57 and three quarters of a cent. We've seen two-sided activity in corn futures. July down a quarter of a cent at 3.94. December penny and a quarter higher, 4.11 and three quarters of a cent. July corn may have overextended the recent rally, according to the wire talk. In the wheats, Chicago July down five and three quarters at 4.73. Kansas City wheat July down two and three quarters for 33 and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat July down two and a half at 5.40 and a half. September down three at 5.48 and three quarters. Livestock at the Merck in lean hog futures more minus signs. One factor driving the futures a growing sense that china will not be filling their need for pork with us supplies june lean hogs down 35 at 8975 live cattle futures trending 30 to 75 cents lower june down 37 at 11047 august down 72 at 10752 feeder cattle august down 92 at 14207 on wall street the dow down 46 s&p down 4 july crude oil down 60 cents in new york you're listening to adams on agriculture i'm rusty halverson from the american ag network
6: do you need a car been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit low credit no credit bankruptcy or divorce guess what today's your lucky day because now you can buy a car truck or suv just about any vehicle it's true bad credit doesn't matter no credit doesn't matter
1: So, just where do trade talks between the U.S. and China stand right now? It seems like we were so close, and now it sounds much more pessimistic. Let's get an update from Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President, U.S. China Business Council. Aaron, thanks for joining us again. Where are we with these talks?
8: <laughs> that is a great question, Mike. I wish I could tell you that we had a definitive answer. Um, what we do know is that um, since the last time you and I spoke, not only did we um, not get a deal, but we seem to be moving in, in the opposite direction. With the U.S. putting even more tariffs on Chinese imports, we believe that on the ag issues in particular, that some significant progress likely has been locked in. And so, really, all that's pending is getting the two sides to move. But right now. We're awaiting probably the next bit of progress will be at the end of June, unfortunately, when President Trump and President Xi Jinping are expected to meet in Japan.
1: So we keep hearing that China has reneged, backed away from things that they said they would agree to in a deal. Do we know specifically what happened there?
8: Yeah, I would say um, this is probably another one of those cases that you and I have talked about before, which is, don't believe everything that you read in the media as with many things i think the story is a little more complex than how it's been simplified what we do know is this. The 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 outstanding issues appear to be the exact same outstanding issues that they've been for months and that is number one what changes does china need to make to ensure that whatever it does are sustainable and what the administration refers to as systemic changes to get at things like market access concerns and um, subsidies and uh, intellectual property rights issues. The second bucket of issues has to do with enforcement, both in terms of how. Uh, in how compliance with the agreement is measured, in addition to what happens to all those tariffs that both governments have put on. Uh, what our understanding is is that um, the differences on those two issues, whether the changes that China makes are done through their National People's Congress, so a legislative change, or an administrative change done through their equivalent of our cabinet, but that does have some actions that it can take that have the force of law. And then on enforcement, it's a matter of what the timeline is for removal of the tariffs. That in itself means that they aren't actually probably aren't as far apart as some of the media reports have suggested, but both sides are going to have to make some compromises here and right now, neither seems to be willing to acknowledge that they're ready to do it.
1: Yeah there's a lot of public posturing going on. We hear from China that uh, reports that there's no rush to restart trade talks. But do you think they will uh, pick up again uh, late next month?
8: To keep in mind of the, of the sequencing of how these things work is the two presidents are expected to meet on the sidelines of the Group of 20 meeting in Osaka. That's uh, roughly June the 28th, which is a Friday. We don't know if they'll meet before or after the official meeting, but somewhere in that June 27th to end of June is the range when we think a bilateral meeting between the two presidents would happen. Under normal circumstances, what you would expect is that in between now and then, the working level folks in the two governments would be working out what the agenda is some of that work may be happening there's certainly things that go beyond trade issues the two governments can talk about but not a whole lot of prep has been done. Um, But this administration is a little bit different than previous administrations. President Trump keeps his own counsel on what he wants to talk about in many of these meetings. So while there might be some groundwork laid that could lead to the two sides being able to agree on a compromise at the end of June, we may not actually know what they're going to talk about until after they've done it.
1: There's a lot of speculation, even brought up by President Trump himself, that China uh, would – Maybe want to wait till after our presidential election to see if maybe somebody other than President Trump is in the office, and they'd rather deal with that person. Is, do, you, do you put any credence into that at all? Is that really a factor in this?
8: It wouldn't surprise me if if it's at least an internal discussion and consideration going on in China, and in fact, I, I suspect that's a conversation that's going on in many capitals around the world that are having disputes with the United States right now. Realistically, we have been telling the Chinese, the U.S. has been telling the Chinese, and frankly, anyone who talks to the Chinese government, um, have been reminding them that as much as the disputes right now are um, very much of a tone and uh, content that are being driven by President Trump, the underlying issues are ones that there is uniform support in addressing in the United States. So a new president might have a different approach on tariffs, but they're unlikely to have a different approach on the substantive issues, and so waiting doesn't make any sense. So I don't think they're waiting out through the 2020 elections. You know, China has, is very interested, I think, in getting re- this resolved as quickly as possible, but on terms that it feels are appropriate. I think the United States wants the same thing, it's really just getting the two sides to agree on what those appropriate terms are.
1: We're talking with Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Aaron, when uh, a company like Walmart uh, comes out and says they may have to raise prices or they may raise prices because of the tariffs, does that put any more pressure on the U.S. side to get something done?
8: Um, I don't know. I mean, at least in Washington, the response to those kinds of comments, and and I would add to that, um, the kind of public comments that many in the agriculture community have been putting out since since many of uh, your listeners are the ones who are on the front lines and have been since last March as tariffs began to increase with the aluminum and steel dispute. Um, So far, the administration is not indicating that that is persuading them. They continue to respond with this is short-term pain for a long-term advantage that we will have. But I think that as the implications of not just that short-term pain of consumer uh, price increases – but also what this is doing to market share for American companies, American farmers. the lo- You and I have talked about this before. The longer that a foreign competitor or a domestic Chinese company has to establish itself as a reliable source of a good or a service in China, the more challenging it's going to be for American companies to regain the share that they had before the disputes.
1: President Trump talks about all this uh, tariff money that goes into U.S. coffers. Uh, can you explain how that works?
8: <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot of new taxes being collected. Um, you know, the way that it works is, you know, kind of similar to to what the ag community experiences when it ships its good overseas. Whoever's buying your product probably is paying whatever that tariff on. That's who's obligated for it under international trade rules. Now, certainly in some product categories, we know that suppliers either in China or the United States have been able to do what they can to mitigate some of the price pressure, particularly on that third list that had some consumer goods and some chemicals and those kinds of things. But a 25% tariff, so products like agriculture, chemicals that have been hit by multiple lists, those are just simply prices that, that many people either have to pass along to their customer or um, face the fact that they simply are not price competitive in the market. But there's no doubt that the U.S. government is taking in more tariffs. It's really just a matter of who's paying them.
1: What are you hearing about the if, the impact of African swine fever in China, uh, the, the great loss of, of hogs there, obviously, um, and how China will fill that uh, protein demand that they're going to have? Uh, will it? A lot of speculation is, will it be the United States or someone else filling that d- demand? What are you hearing there?
8: So, uh, certainly, this is one of those issues that would be a lot clearer if we knew when we might have an agreement between the U.S. and the Chinese government, since one of the issues that has made the the price of pork from the United States um, non competitive right now in China is the combination of the retaliatory tariffs from both the steel and aluminum tariffs and the IP and tech transfer tariffs that the US put on. You know, that, that's got an, an extra fifty percent that's added to the price of US pork exports to China. There's a strong desire in China to buy American ag products They recognize the high quality, the safety standards that American um, farmers and and agriculture companies bring into the market. But until those issues are resolved, the products are just simply very expensive. We have not – there's no other supplier that we know of that can quickly replace all of the supply that the U.S. both is ready to provide and can provide on a sustained basis. Um, the, you know, this, this will have some additional challenges in the, in the related industries, because if there's a lot fewer pigs in China, then there's going to be a decreased demand for things like soybeans for feed uh, once that market gets opened up as well. But for the time being, I think the Chinese are making do with what they have, and, um, and I think keeping an eye on the fact that perhaps a resolution of the trade dispute could help them in that area as well.
1: All right, Aaron. thanks for the update. Hopefully, next time we talk, we'll have uh, more positive news. We'll just see what happens. Uh, (laughs) But uh, thanks for giving us the perspective that we can't always go by just what we're hearing in the media. So thanks very much.
8: No problem, Mike. Have a good day.
1: Thank you, Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President for the U.S.-China Business Council. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with former Secretary of Agriculture, now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Tom Vilsack, I want to talk to him, get his thoughts on the lifting of the metal tariffs on Canada and Mexico and his thoughts on the the trade situation with China, certainly from a dairy perspective. But also yesterday, he was one of those uh, appearing before the Senate Ag Committee, uh, a hearing on climate change. And uh, Tom Vilsack was stressing that uh, there are many opportunities here if this is done right for agriculture, and we'll get his thoughts on that as well. That's coming up next here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
3: There's a lot of talk coming from the makers of wheat fungicides these days. And some of them are really talking up some pretty big claims.
0: But
2: when you eliminate the fungicides
3: that are Johnny-come-lately's, the ones without a proven track record, and the ones from makers who consider wheat to be just an afterthought, there's really only one left to talk about. The one you know and can trust. Karamba fungicide from BASF. It gives you best-in-class head scab suppression, top-level dawn reduction, and excellent control of late-season foliar diseases. And all of that gives you a proven yield advantage over untreated infected wheat acres. Karamba fungicide from BASF. For time-proven performance you can trust. Everything else is just.
2: Talk, 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 talk. Talk, talk, talk. talk
3: to learn talk, how caramba talk. fungicide can help your wheat's yield potential, talk to your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow
1: label directions. Agriculture brought to you by Sinex Premium Diesel. Sinex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
4: Everyone responds differently to change. Some are frightened by it, some try to ignore it, and some are inspired by it. Poet has always shared a true connection with farmers, and like farmers, we see the world differently. We're inspired by change. So when it comes to the challenge of climate change, we see opportunity to make the air cleaner, to make our country safer, to leave the planet we've been given just a little better. Biofuels and oil alternatives, solutions for a brighter, more sustainable world. Get inspired with us. Visit Poet.com.
8: You're going to
7: need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math, our engineering skills.
9: You're going to need our help with your water
7: your air, your food. You're going to need our organizational skills, our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org.
1: Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're talking with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Let's talk about USMCA. We've heard labor unions say they won't support it. We've heard Nancy Pelosi bring up uh, some issues. Is this uh, just the normal give and take of this kind of, a, uh, you know, uh, before you get to a vote on a big deal like this? Or are these legitimate deal breakers that could keep it from passing?
10: If they're talking about going back to the negotiating table with Canada and Mexico, those countries aren't stupid enough to do it. Uh, and if we, if they're proposing that, then they're proposing that we won't have any credibility dealing with any country, including China, right now. If we're on the cusp of a good agreement with China, so uh, if they, but if they can do some things by side letters
11: or annexes to the agreement, uh, then I'm willing to sit down and, and talk to
1: them. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture.
5: Your harvest is your most important asset. It's like money in the bank, and you can get everything you need to store and protect it through one source, your FS Grain System Specialist. With any brand of grain system you choose, your specialist will oversee planning and construction to make sure it's done right. And you can count on FS for maintenance too. Contact your local FS company or visit fsgrainsystems.com. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next.
1: Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: And we're joined now by the President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, former Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. Mr. Secretary, good to talk with you again. Thanks for being with us.
11: You bet, Mike. Happy to be with you.
1: I know you, like uh, I get about everybody in agriculture, really happy when the announcement came down that uh, the metal tariffs were being lifted on Canada and Mexico.
11: Absolutely. A big barrier to uh, getting the USMCA uh, to the floor for a vote and hopefully getting it passed through the Congress so we can get the benefits of a uh, a wider wider open Canadian market at the end of Class 7 and uh, preserving our number one market in Mexico.
1: Seems now that momentum is starting to build. We're starting to see more meetings, more discussion of USMCA uh, in Congress.
11: I think that's right. I think that many members of of Congress were concerned about whether or not uh, a vote could be taken as long as the retaliatory tariffs were were in effect. I think Mexico and Canada had made their feelings uh, well known about this, that there wasn't going to be an agreement until such time as those tariffs were resolved. And and it's great to see that happen. Uh, And obviously with uh, the breakdown in the China talks, we needed a ray of sunshine uh, for this industry that's gone through a couple, couple, three, four, five years of of pretty tough prices. this was good news and, and certainly uh, uh, hopefully it, it it indicates momentum towards passage of USMCA and perhaps uh, the administration can successfully conclude something with Japan uh, that will also provide some additional help for the dairy industry
1: you mentioned China we just talked with Erin Ennis senior vice president of the US China Business Council and she thought maybe things aren't quite as uh, pessimistic as they sound in the in the coverage Uh, but obviously there are big concerns and issues to resolve. What are you hearing, and uh, what are your thoughts on where we're at in these talks with China?
11: Well, look, there's no question that uh, the U.S. had uh, legitimate reason to uh, ask China to change their way of doing business, uh, especially as it relates to uh, U.S. investment in China. Uh, But the reality is that what we're asking China to do is to essentially change their way of doing business, uh, and it's a fundamental change we're asking them to make at a time when President Xi has sort of doubled down on state-owned enterprises and and things of that nature. Uh, So I think this is a tough negotiation. I think there's obviously a split within the administration between those who would like to disconnect our economy from China and those who feel that it's still worthy of of a connection. And I think until that uh, dispute is resolved, it's probably going to be difficult for us to eventually get to a place where uh, both China and the U.S. can agree. Uh, I think the other key is that at this point in time, uh, our US economy is strong. Uh, and while we probably will see some increases in prices for consumers, uh, th- there hasn't been uh, except in agriculture the kind of pain that you would expect that would move people to uh, to accelerate uh, discussions and negotiations. Uh, obviously, uh, the administration is looking at this from the long haul, uh, which is why Secretary Purdue and the folks at USDA are working on uh, yet another trade aid package. Um, and farmers will be the first to tell you that they appreciate uh, the sentiment but at the end of the day what they want is is trade not aid.
1: So yesterday the Senate Ag Committee holds a hearing on climate change and you were one of those uh, asked to testify. You spoke before the committee and you emphasized the opportunities that are here for agriculture where many times in the past these kind of talks have quite frankly to farmers appear more like burdens more regulation and and more uh, you know uh, unwanted things but you pointed out there are great opportunities in this
5: for agriculture
11: well I think that's right Mike look uh, dairy farming is tough uh, we've seen a, a continued consolidation of dairy farms in the US and a a decline of the number of dairy farms, especially among smaller producers. And, and we've got to look for different ways to create alternative, additional revenue streams for dairy farmers and for farmers generally. Uh, to the extent that we can create markets that will invest in land conservation, uh, that creates a new revenue stream potentially for farmers. To the extent that we can convert uh, waste product uh, in in a, a dairy uh, production process uh, or in in a, in a farm t- into chemicals, materials, fabrics, fibers, fuel, energy uh that creates a new opportunity a new product if you will or a new commodity for uh, farmers to be able to sell so i'm looking at ways in which we can take this uh, this challenging situation and turn it into a series of opportunities to increase investment in research increase investment in infrastructure to help farmers uh, do the right thing by the environment and do the right thing by their land and at the same time create additional uh, revenue opportunities for farmers and i think if we can get to that then we'll uh, take a look at policies and incentives rather than regulations uh, to encourage the farm community to embrace this. And and frankly, we're already doing that Uh, in many respects. The dairy industry has been a leader. Uh, Emissions are down uh, within uh, dairy production in the U.S., and that's not true uh, globally. Um, Our our folks have really uh, taken this to task, uh, looking for greater efficiency. Uh, And there are just enormous opportunities here. Uh, and I was hopeful that the, uh, the hearing, I certainly appreciate Senator Roberts and Senator Stabenow having the hearing, hoping that, that it raises the awareness of, of policymakers that they need to look at ways in which they can encourage the development of pilots or demonstration farms that can showcase all of the technologies that do exist and maybe even try out a few that uh, haven't existed yet uh, as a way of showing the path forward uh, for, uh, for the future.
1: Yeah, it seems like in the past there's not been acknowledgement of what agriculture is already doing and can do. It's been more about, it seems almost like more punishment rather than uh, uh, encouragement.
11: Yeah, and that's frustrating for farmers because they're doing the right thing and they're doing more of it, and they're actually getting results. Uh, and our agriculture is certainly less uh, of an emitter than the global agriculture, uh, agriculture and, and other locations around the world. Farmers should receive some benefit for this. They should receive some credit for it, and they should receive some incentives and some encouragement to, to go further. Uh, there are opportunities. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous uh, 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 array of products that could be made from manure that, uh, that could create a whole new economy uh, in, uh, out in the countryside, um, uh, opportunities for new uh, equipment that will have to be made by U.S. workers, and so uh, it's about jobs, it's about increasing revenue opportunities for farmers, and it's about increasing the, the rural economy generally. Uh, that's the way I think we should look at this, and that's the way I think our policymakers should be directing incentives and, and programs and resources to, to encourage it.
1: Mr. Secretary, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much.
11: You bet. Take care, Mike.
1: President, CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, former Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack. Well, that wraps up a very busy show today. We're expecting uh, uh, much more information on the next round of uh, market facilitation uh, payments, and so we'll be talking more about that tomorrow and also the planting situation. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.